Hello. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Castro Files. How you doing, honey? Good. Happy New Year's Eve. I know, right? Already a year mm-hmm. down. Wow. Getting ready to start a new year, 2023. We're going to end 2022 with a bang. We've got a pretty good story about some about a very famous UFO abduction yes. took place in Arizona. What do you have tonight? I have a scary tale uh, written by a, an author that I thought was really good. So I'm going to read that. It was called, nice. I think it's called The Whimpering? The Whimpering. Yes. The Whimpering, The Whimper Tree. Sorry. Okay. The Whimper, the whimper tree. tree. That so, sounds yeah. intriguing. So first and foremost, go out and give us a like and a subscribe out on YouTube under the Castro Files channel. Also, you can find this on the Bars Open. We push all of our audio for the Castro Files out to the Bars Open um, audio channels. So iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio, all of the usual suspects, but you can go out and follow us there. Thank you very much for following us this year. It was a fun, it's been a fun podcast to kick off, something we're very interested in doing. Kind of having a good time. The weird, strange, creepy kinds of of stories. Unexplainable. Yeah, the unexplainable. So again, it's been awesome. Thank you so much. We'll jump into it. Liv, do you want me to start? Yes. Or do you want to start? You go for it. I'll start. So mine. This one is a story that took place back in the 70s, and it's always intrigued me. They made a movie about it years ago, Yes, and you may be familiar with the story of the movie called Fire in the Sky, yep. and it was this gentleman, I'm going to go through the story, uh, this gentleman by the name of Travis Walton. Yes. So, moving to Arizona from New Hampshire, of course, my mom back in the day was like, <laughs> be careful, and just before that... I think I moved in 97. Okay. I got there in like July of 97. Okay. And only a few months prior to that was when the Phoenix oh, lights, lights in the happened. Sky. Yeah. Right. And that's still like, was it flares? Was it a giant UFO? We'll never Who know. Knows, right? right. So, yeah. I mean, of course, it's like, Arizona, right? You're driving through New Mexico and you go through all these places and right. all this craziness, right? So, all these things that are supposed to have stuff happening. Right. right. So it, it is a story that's always intrigued me and I hope you guys like it too. So I'm going to jump into it. This was on, I found this story out on Saucer Encounters. Um, it's a it's a page, a, a website called saucerco.com and it's what happened to Travis Walton. So what happened to Travis Walton? <laughs> The Travis Walton incident is one of the most famous cases of ufology. This article is based on the true story of Travis Walton's UFO encounter. Specific facts and details have been cross-referenced with what Travis has said about his encounter. The incident, Wednesday, November 5th, 1975, was set to be just another regular workday for 22-year-old Travis Walton. Little did he know that he would have the experience of a lifetime that evening. After a long day of work in the Apache Sitgraves National Forest, Travis and his logging crew of six were riding home when they suddenly noticed a brilliant glow peeking through the trees. As they continued riding down the dirt road, they eventually got close enough to realize the light was emanating from a structured craft. Before the truck came to a complete stop and mesmerized by what they saw, by what he saw, Travis leapt from out from the vehicle to approach the unidentified object as it hovered silently in the clearing within moments of his approach. Walton was struck by a vibrant bluish green beam of light that seemingly came from the bottom of the craft and sent him flying backwards several feet. The immense beam lit up the entire forest brighter than daylight. 
The witnesses have compared the beam to a bolt of lightning and a long blue flame. Travis never saw the beam. In a panic, the crew boss and driver of the truck, Mike Rogers, fled the scene as quickly as possible. The crew was utterly baffled as what they had, as what they had witnessed had no earthly explanation. Minutes later, the crew decided to return to the site of to the site to help Travis if they could. Much to everyone's surprise, Travis was gone. The crew looked for several minutes, could not find him anywhere. What, with seemingly no other hope, the crew drove into town to, and contacted the local sheriff. They explained what they had witnessed as best they could and told authorities that a flying saucer had taken their friend, Travis Walton. In an effort to prove them wrong, the sheriff conducted a thorough search of the area along with Mike Rogers. They could not find him. Imagine going to a police department and be like, uh, my friend just got kidnapped right. by... An alien Right, got abducted. Yeah. Yep. And this is, again, this is the 70s. 70s. So we, it's not like they had They weren't very familiar with UFO and stuff, and right? Stuff. Yeah, and they didn't have anything. Nothing to just. Capture it. Yeah. Yeah. So in the days Walton was missing, all six of the co-work, of his coworkers were accused of murder. With no, one, with no explanation, Mike Rogers and, his, and the rest of his crew stuck to their story. As far as, far as they were concerned, they witnessed a UFO sh- shoot a beam at Travis and knock him to the ground before he suddenly vanished just minutes later. Very little is known as to what happened after Travis was struck. This portion of the story relies on Travis's memory. The rest of the incredible experience was revealed as a result of a regression hypnosis conducted by Dr. James A. Harder in the 70s. In the hypnosis room with Harder and Walton were three physicians and a psychiatrist. Uh, yeah, psychiatrist. When discussing the case, Harder said, beyond any reasonable doubt, the evidence is as valid as any would be accepted in American criminal court. And here's a quick picture of Travis Walton and his crew for reference. So it's got all the guys up on the logging route. Travis says he blacked out the moment the beam hit him. He says he felt... A numbing shock and then blacked out. The next thing he could remember is waking up while laying flat in an oddly shaped room. Travis says he opened his eyes. He suddenly noticed three humanoid creatures standing over him. Walton recalls a strange device placed over his chest, holding him down on the table. Startled by this, Travis Walton recalls he got up and grabbed the object to defend himself from the odd creatures. He waved it around in an attempt to threaten them. Travis describes the creatures as being between four and five feet tall with pale skin and enlarged heads. They had large brown eyes and were wearing orange jumpsuits. Travis's description of the beings is similar to that of others. Once the three creatures left the room, Travis curiously walked around the craft. He soon found himself in a room that resembled a planetarium. Then two more human-looking human beings in blue jumpsuits approached Travis and transported him elsewhere. Travis believes he was, believes he was transported out of, the sh- out of the scout ship he was in and taken to another craft. He remembers these beings putting, on mask-like device, putting a mask-like device over his face that caused him to black out. But beyond that, he remembers very little. The Return Travis Walton's disappearance had initially been treated as a missing person case. Arizona sheriffs searched for Travis with scent dogs and helicopters throughout the Apache Graves National Forest for five days. The most extensive extensive search in Arizona history came to an end when Travis Walton was returned just miles away from where he had been taken. 
Just after midnight on Monday, November 10th, 1975, Travis was left lying face down by the side of the road. Wow. He says he awoke to see a metallic mirror-like craft departing above. Travis got to his feet and ran as quickly as he could to find help. Eventually, he found a phone booth at a local gas station in Heber, Arizona. We've been through Heber. By which he contacted his family. Met with shock and disbelief, Travis was notified that he'd been gone for five days. Wow. <clears throat> Travis was immediately taken to the hospital that found him dehydrated and noticed a puncture wound on his right arm. he had also lost 12 pounds and had grown oh, five days worth of facial hair. Five of the six witnesses passed polygraph tests in the days Travis was gone. One of the witnesses, Alan Dellis, walked out of the room before the test was completed. He and Travis had gotten into a fight the morning of the incident, and he felt overly agitated that the police were trying to pin the crime on him. I can see. Right? I mean, I can Travis see. also passed a polygraph test, and medical records indicated no drugs were in his system. Travis returned with faint memories of being examined by alien creatures and accidentally viewing a star system from the craft's cockpit. He believes the beam, which struck him in the head and chest, killed him upon impact. Walton also believes he was taken on board the craft to be revived. Hmm. Interesting, right? Yeah. <clears throat> so were they trying to kill him? I don't, don't think know. so. I don't know. So this is just his book that he wrote. Leave that up there for a minute if you're interested in going out and checking that out. It is important to know to note that if Travis had been hiding or lost wandering in the forest, as initially suspected, he would have likely frozen to death at night with temperatures reaching a blistering eight degrees Fahrenheit or 13.3 negative 13.3 degrees Celsius. Related phenomena. Researchers suggest that sheriffs were investigating cattle mutilations in the area just before Travis's abduction. Analysis of trees directly surrounding the area Travis was struck has also shown that they have seen accelerated growth due to radiation exposure, potentially from UFO. Interesting. By looking at the trees, tree rings in the area and comparing them to others nearby, a clear indication was made that the affected trees underwent a significant change. When discussing his, two, his 2014 investigation of the site, Ben Hansen said not only was there extreme growth rate to some of these trees around the, around the clearing, but it seems that there was directionality to them. Hansen noted that the growth appeared to be focused in one particular region within the clearing. The press. In November of 1975, Several media outlets reported on Travis's encounter, and more often than not, with inaccurate and incomplete information. Several newspapers and media outlets covered Travis's story, including Arizona's very own White Mountain Independent. The paper call, covered Walton's case on November 14, 1975, with the front page headline, which reads, Kidnapped into Spacecraft? As, this, as a result, the story quickly gained a local buzz in Walton's hometown. Some believed his claims, many did not. Understandably distraught and perhaps still in shock, Travis initially avoided all media. I can't imagine. Yeah, I wouldn't get in front of yeah. him. This did not stop the understandably distraught, I'm sorry, this did not stop the story from getting out. However, his initial reluctance to meet with the media only fueled skeptics and encouraged rumors. Soon, media outlets from all over the world would flood into Travis's humble town of Snowflake, Arizona. In an effort to minimize his interactions with the press, Travis agreed to an exclusive with the National Enquirer. 
strange option. Yeah. <laughs> the Inquirer funded efforts to either prove or disprove Travis's claims. According to an to the original article, Travis underwent a polygraph examination, and the Inquirer printed the headline, Arizona man taken by a flying saucer in bold type in the December 1975 issue. At the time, the National Enquirer considered itself the largest circulation of any paper in America. Maybe it's it still out. You I mean, can yeah, still get Inquirer. Maybe it wasn't what it is today. That's why it was. It wasn't just the tabloids. Yeah, exactly. Right. The case was also covered in MUFON's now defunct Sky, Sky Look publication uh, in April of 1976. In the monthly journal, Walton had the chance to explain his side of the story, perhaps for the first time. Walton said, when I returned on November 10th, I was in, in a serious emotional state. At that time, and for weeks after, I didn't want to tell anybody about my experience except those close to me. I avoided the public and media for several days. During my silence, a lot of misinformation was printed. Just a couple of months after the incident in January 1976, Travis Walton was flown to Los Angeles, California to be interviewed, interviewed by Star Trek's Leonard Nimoy huh. for, the, for a pilot TV show. Travis was accompanied by researchers Jim and Coral Lorazon, Lorazon of the Aerial Phenomena Research Organization, APRO, APRO. The episode with Travis neither air, never aired on television. The APRO Bulletin reported that the show was titled The Unexplained. While others say it was titled In Search Of, Nimoy even discussed his belief in UFOs and Travis Walton's story with the National Choir. While or when he when asked about his belief in UFOs, Leonard Nimoy said, I believe in UFOs because so many qualified observers and solid people have reported sightings that just can't be dismissed. I've talked with Travis Walton, a young Arizona man who claimed to, he was actually taken aboard a UFO, a UFO. It was a bizarre story, but I felt he was being truthful. In 1976, Travis and his crew were awarded $5,000 by the National Enquirer, despite skeptics claiming the whole case was hoaxed as a money scheme. There has been no clear evidence to suggest that it was a hoax. On the opening day of Fire in the Sky on March 12, 1993, Travis Walton and Mike Rogers appeared on Larry King Live. This was Travis and Mike's first major interview. No clear... Uh, first major interview. Interview. The segment featured ufo ufologist, biggest skeptic, Philip Klass. Approximately 45 years after his incident, Travis Walton appeared on the episode 1597 of the Joe Rogan Experience. Mm -hmm. In the two-hour episode or interview, Travis expresses his similarities to the craft he saw to that being described by Bob Lazar. As mentioned by Travis's tester, Travis, Tester's 1994 area S4 UFO model does bear a resemble, resemblance to the craft witnessed by himself and the crew. And I think I have a photo of the craft. There we go. So, the investigation. The abduction site was initially inadequately investigated by Bill Spaulding of Ground Saucer Watch. It's funny how many UFO groups there are oh, out there, Oh, and right? how many probably even since APRO, then. APRO, <laughs> Ground Saucer Watch. What was the other one? I mean, Bob Lazar is famous yeah. in this space, right? In 1976, Travis expressed that he had never met or spoken with Spaulding, nor had Spaulding spoken with any witnesses. The incident was investigated more seriously by the APRO, 
According to Travis, APRO carried the real carried the real investigation as they conducted several medical, psychiatric, psychiatric, <laughs> hypnotic, and polygraph examinations. In the summer of 2014, Ben Hansen closely investigated the site again and found signs of significant tree growth in the area, presumably resulting from the UFO's radiation, as noted before. The Walton Experience, the book, the one I just shared a minute ago, and I'll post all the pictures out on the uh, bars, or I'm sorry, on the Castro Files page as well, out on Instagram. Within months of the incident, Travis had already begun writing about his experience. A newspaper feature from February of 1976 reported that Walton had already started writing about his ordeal, possibly as a way to cope with what had happened to him. The report also notes that he had been working closely with an artist to illustrate the encounter. That artist, that unnamed artist was presumably Mike Rogers. In March of 1978, Berkeley Books published Travis, Travis's book, fittingly titled The Walton Experience. In his book, he detailed his encounter and gave insight into the experience of being taken aboard a UFO. According to Travis's crew boss, Mike Rogers, the Walton experience sold 50,000 copies in less than a month. Wow. That's pretty good. Mm -hmm. The aftermath. For decades, Travis Walton has been widely regarded as the most famous alien abductee in the world. His case is arguably second to only the startling claims of Betty and Barney Hill. Mm -hmm. Remember them? Mm-hmm who say they were taken and returned in 1961 by extraterrestrials, be, extraterrestrial beings from the Zeta Reticuli star system. However, Betty and Barney's case has never been backed by first, several firsthand witnesses, like Travis has had. Perhaps put best by 1998 MUFON journal, when uf ufologists discuss the most credible abduction cases, three stand out. Betty and Barney Hill, Charles Hickson and Calvin Parker Pascaluga case and the Travis Walton case. Skeptics have tried to explain Travis's case away by saying that the whole experience was a drug-induced hallucination. However, they did blood work. They tested him, mm -hmm. right? However, it's highly unlikely for seven men to all hallucinate the same exact incident. Accidentally, or additionally, medical records show that Travis did not have any drugs in his system, mm -hmm. like I just mentioned. Although the U.S. Air Force's Project Blue Book was not in operation at the time of Travis's incident, Dr. J. Allen Hinnick said, in, in, said this in 1976. Well, I think that he underwent, I understand, a Minnesota multifacet personality inventory. I don't know what that is. I don't either. And passed it with high colors. It shows some sort, some sort of test, yeah multifacetic facic. I don't know what that is. I need to Google that. It shows that he was, he was not psychotic or did not have, or was not giving, given to deception. Now, if that is so, I think that it's point, it points in his favor. But what I've always felt about the case, I've divided into two parts. One is the first part involving all seven. They took lie detector tests and passed and passed them. It fits pattern. See if they were, the only case, if this was the only case on record, then I would have to say, well, I couldn't possibly believe it. But at the Center for UFO Studies, now we have some two dozen similar abduction cases now currently being studied. Something is going on. It is important to note that Dr. J. Allen Hennick is perhaps the is perhaps best remembered for being the chief investigator and scientific advisor on UFOs for the U.S. Air Force. Hennick is also credited with creating the Close Encounter Classification System, which 
we're familiar with. So the movie, of course, came out Fire in the Sky. Travis Travis Walton's story remains one of the most famous and best documented alien abduction cases. You can go out and check that out. It came out in the 90s, like we had said. So, impact on Travis. The overall experience has affected Travis in ways in in ways that perhaps very few may understand. According to his own website, Travis-Walton.com, Travis says, if I had to do it over again, I wouldn't get out of the truck. Uh, The notion of whether his experience was exciting or terrifying is a matter of opinion. Travis, however, has often expressed a fearful recollection of the entire experience. Since 1975, Travis Walton's story has not changed. Naturally, his choice of words has slight has differed slightly over the four decades he's been sharing his experience. Nonetheless, his story stands the test of time and continues to be compelling even for those who've heard it several times. Travis is well admired by so many people and well respected by veteran researchers in the field of ufology. His story is incredible and remarkable. So, you just think to the point, like I had said, right? So immediately, like when you're talking about the story, the first thing I think is, why would he get out of the truck? I, I, I'm sure then he you kicks have himself about that. The story that I told before of my aunt. Yeah. And my aunt's getting out of the yeah, car I and running up the hill to see to go see what was that thing. I, and I, I wonder is it which natural way would curiosity? I be? Or like, I don't think I'd get out of the car, though. I think I'd be like, you go if you want to go see it. Well, they just suck it. you out of the car I'm instead. not going to let you go either. I'm going to be like, your ass is staying right here. <laughs> right? Um, but I often wondered, like, does he ever regret getting out of the car? He says he um, wouldn't have gotten out. I saw that movie. Right? The, yeah, the movie... Plays a little bit more into the role of when he was abducted. I think they probably, of Coming course, for movie stuff, purposes, yeah. make it a little mm-hmm. bit grander than he probably remembers. I do. I've seen several instance uh, interviews mm-hmm. with him. Um, he's in his mid seventies now. Yeah, he right st- he still hasn't changed his mind. And it's funny because you said so many things. So Ben Hansen. Yep. He is a retired FBI agent, is and he... we watch his show. Uh, oh yeah, the yeah, UFO yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. show. I can't. You know, CIA UFO... was he? CIA? No, he was FBI. FBI. Okay, I think it was FBI. He was some sort of federal government. He was. But a, I'm pretty I think sure it was FBI. Was, yeah. I think he was FBI. Um, it's called UFO Files or so unexplained mm-hmm. or something like that. So he still does a show, um, and I think I remember him doing this one. The other one, MUFON, is still really popular. Yeah. Like they're involved in a lot of those. We watched a story about the guy from New York, the writer. I can't think of his name right now, but they were involved with his um it, it's the same, especially now, like since twenty uh ten, a lot of the same people are involved with a lot of the UFO sightings. It does always strike me that his story is like the most Famous because there were so many witnesses. Yeah, there were six witnesses with him. And it's funny how like people try to play it off with drugs, even though there's things that show that they weren't on drugs. And I just it and it's funny because none of them have ever changed their story. Right, they've never even wavered from it. So I like here's the here's the uh, clip the pictures when he was on the um, Leonard Nimoy show Mm -hmm. doing that. I remember that show. Do you? Uh-huh. Well, no, they said it didn't air. No, Maybe but I, that, episode that didn't episode air. didn't air. But he did have a show, I think it was called The Unexplained or something. He did have a show about weird stuff for yeah. a little while. I vaguely. In I the don't, 80s, I, I was think. In, I don't know. I was born in 76. You were, I, I was you were born a kiddo. In 76. I was yeah. just a little, like, a young one. And here's what here's the artist depiction of the aliens. Here's the thing. That is the reoccurring picture that everybody gives. Now, right. two thoughts, right? Is it the same picture everybody gives because everybody has seen it? This is in 76. I know, so. but it's still the same picture that everybody gives today. 
um, of the Greys, supposedly is what they call yeah. the, those guys. Um, is it because that's what they see or because that's what they've seen drawn? Oh. I also looked up what the um, Minnesota Multifacic Personality Inventory, also called the MMPI. Okay, they could have uh, just said that. It's one of the most commonly used psychological tests in the United States. It's okay. primarily used to help mental health professionals assess and diagnose mental health conditions such as schizophrenia, depression, and anxiety. Lawyers also use the MMPI as forensic evidence in criminal defense and custody disputes. So there you go. So, I mean... You're talking about like something that's used in court in mm -hmm. case law and stuff like that. So absolutely. So it's a really cool one. I, I've always just liked this story. It's it's such an intriguing story to me. It is. It's really that, intriguing. And that you can just dig into that one. So yes, that was my story, was story. of Travis Walton to share today. It was today. a very good story. So what's your, you, you've got the whimpering tree. The whimpering tree. All so right. this is from a book called um, Fright Bites. Uh, it's short tales of terror by Micah Edwards. Um, and I really just, I found it just looking for stuff to read and talk about. And I, this one kind of, um, it's creepy in a slow, quiet way. Okay. When, when you start to Creeps think about, on you. well, it's creepy in the sense that you start to think about it after like the story. And I was like, Oh, that's kind of weird. Um, <laughs> All right. let's hear it. Okay. So the whimper tree, when I was a kid, I used to love it when my granddad came to visit, he was a big man, tall and stout and loud with a huge bushy beard and a booming laugh. He wore an eye patch over his left eye, and in my mind, he really was a pirate. I'd always shown him pictures I'd draw of him aboard a ship, fighting a dragon and sea monsters, and he'd laugh his big laugh and tell me that it wasn't like that at all, but he'd wink when he said it, so I never knew for sure. One time I asked him if he'd stolen my dad as a baby, capturing him from a sinking ship. Why would you think that? He asked me curiously. I gestured to my dad who was in the other room reading. Visually, he and my granddad had almost nothing in common. My dad was of average height with a slight build. He was clean shaven, pale, neat, and wiry. In my grandfather's presence, he seemed almost to vanish, eclipsed by my granddad's personality and, um, personality and self. He's so normal, I told my granddad, and you're like a pirate bear. My granddad roared with laughter, slapping his knee. No, he told me. He's mine, all right. Body and blood. But you're so different. Granddad shrugged. He liked to read. Nothing wrong with that. He was a sharp boy and grew up to be a smart man. A smarter man than his old man, that's for sure. Did you ever wish he was more like you, though? I wanted to, uh, What I wanted to ask was if he'd ever wanted my dad to take over the pirate ship, but I knew I wouldn't get a straight answer if I asked that. I was trying to dance around the question with a child's attempt at slyness. To tell the truth, I was happy to have him staying inside. I was probably overprotective as a parent, but it put me at ease to have him at home and quiet. I tried to picture my granddad as overprotective and failed. The best I could imagine was him pushing my dad behind him as cannibals attacked the ship. <laughs> my granddad saw my disbelief expression, my disbelieving expression. He leaned in close and tapped his eye patch. Did I ever tell you how I got this eye or I lost this eye? I shook my head. I'd often ask, but he always made up some fantastical story that even I didn't believe. I was young. Not as young as you. I was in high school. It was summer, and I was out in the woods with three friends of mine, Brian, Jimmy, and Mike. Their names were. We were out in the woods because our parents wouldn't have us in the house anymore. They'd kick us out when the sun rose, and we, were expected to back. we weren't expected back until dark. So all day, every day, we'd go roam around. 
This particular day, we were deep in the woods catching crawdads in the stream and throwing pine cones at each other. We had vague plans of making a fort, but none of us had brought any sort of tools, so this quickly devolved into finding fallen logs and trying to prop them up uh, on one another. We had... We were having mild success, but most of what we found was soggy and rotten from the long contact with the ground. Then we came upon a dead tree, still upright. It was bone white, not a leaf or a scrap of bark on it. It stood dozens of feet tall, its skeletal branches clutching at the sky. We all stopped and stared for a minute, captivated by its presence. It was an odd totem of death to find in the middle of a lush green forest. Jimmy broke the silence. Now that, he said, will make a nice fort. Come on, let's push it over. Brian and I started forward, but Mike held back. Guys, no, he said, leave it be. What? It's perfect, said Jimmy and Brian, and I nodded our agreement. Listen, Mike said, and we did. For a moment, all I heard was tree creaking slightly as it swayed in the wind. And then, quietly, there was a sound of someone sobbing, distant, small, like they'd long since given up all hope. But then Jimmy said, all I hear is the tree that sounds like it's about ready to fall. Come on, push. And suiting actions and suiting actions to word, he put his hands against the tree and shoved. When he pushed, I heard it groan and it sounded like no trade ever heard. It was a sound of fatal sickness of a man's dying breath. I'd walked over to help him, but I stopped in my tracks when I heard that. Stop, Mike cried. But Jimmy just laughed and said, guys, come on, give me a hand here. Stop it, Mike said again, putting his hand on Jimmy's shoulder, but Jimmy pushed him away. Mike's face hardened. I'm going to go home, he said. If you're too stupid to listen, I'm not going to stay here and watch you get hurt. I'm headed back too, I said. Jimmy ignored, Jimmy ignored me. As Mike and I walked away, I heard him say to Brian, give me a boost here. I think I can snap off some of these limbs and we can use them for the corners. Mike and I walked in silence for a bit, listening to leaves crunch under our feet. Finally, he spoke. It's called the whimper tree, he said. My dad told me about it. It's bad luck. People die around it, especially anyone who tries to hurt it. And it, it keeps them. Afterwards, I mean, you hear it, right? The crying. I nodded and Mike continued. He said the whimper tree never lets you go. It feeds on the stolen lives. So why not just avoid it? I asked. It seemed a reasonable question. We'd been pretty deep in the woods today or fence it off or something. Mike was already shaking his head before I finished talking. It's not like that. Not like a normal tree. It's anywhere, everywhere, anywhere it wants to be. It was deep in the forest today, but it could be right on the edge the next time you see it, or, or in a park even, but it's always the same. Bone white trunk, big clawed branches looking years dead, and when it moves, you can hear the crying of the people it's collected. We walked on, long, we, we walked on a long way without saying anything after that. Even the forest seemed oddly silent and still. When the town finally came into view again, it was a huge relief. Mike and I took off for our own houses without so much as a goodbye to each other, eager to be back in the safety and security of our home. The next morning, we found out that Brian and Jimmy had never made it home at all. I was wondering. Granddad paused for a moment, fixing me with his one-eye stare to make sure I was paying attention. I was utterly wrapped. This sounded like another made-up story, but it was his best one yet. Mike and I took their fathers back to where we'd been yesterday, thinking that maybe they'd gotten that fort built and decided to spend the night in it. When we got there, we found that they were still there, all right, both of them lying at the base of the whimpering tree. Jimmy with a broken neck from a bad fall and a branch from the tree stabbed through his side. Brian <sighs> underneath him, that same branch jammed directly into his throat, driven by Jimmy's weight. 
Brian's dad wailed. I'll always remember that sound, that heart-wrenching noise of pain and loss. But underneath it, behind it, I heard another sound. As the wind blew and the branches of the whimper tree cracked, I could hear voices crying out in terror. They were whisper soft and sounded miles away, but I recognized them all the same. I knew it was Brian and Jimmy caught by the tree. Granddad was quiet, remembering. I piped up. But how'd you lose your eye? Granddad sighed. I was young, angry, and stupid. I thought I could get revenge. I went back a few days later, went out there on my own with a box of matches. I piled up leaves and sticks around the base of the whimper tree, built them up nice and high. Then I set fire to it and stood back to watch the tree burn. There was a popping noise as a pine cone or wood knot exploded, and suddenly I felt heat on my face and a searing pain in my eye. I screamed, clawing at it, and I pulled an amber the size of my thumbnail out of my left eye. There was another pop, and another piece exploded from the fire, striking me in the nose. I turned and ran, heedless of the fire I'd left behind. I fled all the way to home in panic, but it was too far late by the time I got there. My eye had been cooked into uselessness. I never saw out of it again. That would be horrible, right? You know, but you know that's like fires, forest fires. That's how pine cones release, right? They explode. break open. I don't know that they, they turn into bullets <clears throat> shooting at your eyeballs, but... This one did. Uh, it was almost okay. I was almost okay with that, though, because I'd killed the tree. The woods caught fire and big swath burned. They had to get firefighters in front of all... They had to get firefighters in from all over to put out put it out. People put two and two together with my burned eye in the woods, and I got in plenty of trouble for it. But no one's property got burned, and every understood, everybody understood what I had been trying to do, at least a little bit. So I never did see, I never did have to see the judge about it. People mainly figured that losing an eye was punishment enough. I was pretty well locked down with the house chores for the rest of the summer. My folks weren't particularly inclined to let me have a lot of freedom after that. So it wasn't until school started uh, back in the fall that I realized I hadn't won at all. It was the first week of school, the first Friday. I was already bored of being back. And then my gaze drift out the window to the woods outside the school. And there it was, big as life, the whimper tree. Standing rooted like it had always been there, its corpse finger branches pressing through other trees standing not 10 feet from the forest's edge. My heart froze and I stared at it, unblinking until the teacher noticed and simply called me back. I tore my eyes away, but as soon as her attention left me, I looked back to see if it had been just a mirage. It was still there, though, waiting. I got Mike to come out with me later, and we stood on the back steps of the school and looked across the field to the tree. The whimper tree stood there, swaying slightly, and although the chatter of all the kids in the school was much too loud to hear anything else, I knew if I were closer, I'd hear the muted cries. Just then, a hand fell on my shoulder, and I jumped about a foot in the air. The hand belonged to my dad, who, hasn't, who, hadn't, who I hadn't heard come in. Dad, he said, frowning, are you telling that old story about the whimper tree again? Dad just smiled. The fact that you still think it's just an old story makes my heart glad. The tree followed me until the day you left home. And it's out there waiting for me now, Dad finished for him. Waiting to finish the job it started, he smiled indulgently. Believe what you like, said Granddad. I've told the boy about it. He can make his own decisions when he sees the tree. Dad shook his head. That he can. I largely forgot about this story for several years, it was just one of among many that my granddad had told me as implausible as any other. So I filed it in the back of my mind, along with all the tales of dragons and monsters and spaceships, he told me. And there it stayed discussed, uh, disused and forgotten. Until one day in eighth grade, when I was out in the forest with my friend Jane. 
Jamie, uh, we were wandering around, whacking trees with stick and swinging on vines when we came across the tremendous dead tree. It was a ghostly grayish white, not a trace of bark on it, with branches like bones grasping for the sky. Suddenly, my granddad's story came back in on me and I halted in my tracks. What a cool tree, said Jamie. Betcha I can climb to the top. I shook my head, feeling a sense of dread, but unable to formulate the sentence I wanted to say. Sure I can, said Jamie, misinterpreting my head shake. No, I just... It's not a good idea, I said. Why, you chicken? Jamie taunted. I, he sauntered over to the tree and started to climb, his feet kicking for purchase on the, on the smooth branch. He shimmed his way up to the lowest branch and grabbed on, swinging himself up onto it. I held my breath as he swung, then released it in a rush of air as he made it without mishap. See, it's easy, said Jamie, straddling the limb. He reached out for a long, thin branch to pull him up, himself upright, and he was halfway to his feet before a sharp snap. The branch broke free, and Jamie tumbled to the ground. I raced over, terrified, but Jamie was already bounding to his feet, laughing. I'm fine, I'm fine. Were you worried about me, little worrywart? He poked at me with a broken branch as he teased, jabbing at my stomach with each question. I swatted the branch away, my concern replaced by amused annoyance. Worry, baby, Jamie chanted, slicing at me with a stick. He whacked me on the arm, which stung from the impact. Quit it, I said, snatching the stick from him, uh, from his grasp and whipping it on his arm in return. He lunged for me and we tasseled for the stick, rolling around on the ground as we each tried to tear it away from each other. With a crack, the stick broke between us, splintering our hands. I felt a sharp pain as shards stabbed into my palm and I cried out and broke free of the grapple. I rose to my feet, my bleeding right hand cradled in my left, and I saw Jamie not only beating from his hand, but also from several pinpricks on his neck. You okay, he asked, our minor battle already forgotten. Yeah, I said, squeezing my hand, intent to lessen the pain. You? He inspected his palm. Yeah, it's fine. My mom's going to want to pull those splinters out when I get home, though. He made a face which I mirrored. The idea of tweezers and digging needles didn't appeal to either one of us. I could see several of the slivers buried under my skin, though, and they were going to have to come out. There was more pain in my future. I was right about the needle and the tweezers, but wrong when I thought it would end there. The next morning, my whole hand was red and swollen. It throbbed painfully whenever I moved it, and I could barely bend my fingers. My parents rushed me to the hospital, but it was already too late. The doctors did what they could, but my hand was going gangrene at an impossible rapid rate. Oof. In the end, they were forced to amputate. Oh. I learned later that Jamie was also admitted to the hospital that day. Unlike me, though, he didn't just have shards in his hand. He'd also gotten tiny fragments in his neck, and while I lost my hand, Jamie lost his life. I remember the day of Jamie's funeral, feeling the ache in my missing hand as I watched his coffin lowered into the ground. I remembered the rage I felt at the unfairness of it all and the desire to do something about it, to get back at the thing that had caused it. When my granddad was there, his big arm around my shoulder, I looked at his eye patch, thought about his attempt to kill the wimper tree, and I chickened out. I told myself that it was the smart thing to do. I told myself that it was just a coincidence, and I told myself a thousand things to make it okay. But I knew, deep down, that the reason I hadn't gone back to chop that tree down was that I was afraid. I hated myself for that for years. Until today, I would have said that that day was a low point of my life. I lost my friend, I lost my good hand, and I lost my belief that the world was good and fair place. But I made my way back from there. I learned to be left-handed. I moved on with my life. I grew up and let things fade a bit. I graduated, moved out, got married, and had kids of my own. 
And that's when that's where we are right now, because my oldest son is 14 and he's out on a camping trip with his class. He just texted me a group picture of all of them standing at the campsite, smiling together and directly behind him. I I know this is where I got goosebumps the first time, too. (laughs) I just got goosebumps and directly behind him. Bone white trunks stark against the sounding tree stands the whimpering tree. Or the whimper tree, I'm sorry. Most of it is out of the frame, but I know that trunk anywhere. And if that's weren't enough, there's one branch visibly in the picture too. It's not stretching up for the sky. It's point towards the camera, a threatening finger. And it's curved downward ever so slightly, reaching possessively for my son. I didn't see the text when it first arrived. I only noticed it an hour or so later. I've called his phone, but he's not answering. Neither is his teacher. And the way I felt that day at Jamie's funeral is nothing compared to this the pit in my stomach right now i'm going to drive out there now i'm bringing my axe i doubt i can kill the tree but i have to try and i know it's miles away but it seems to me that i can already hear that faint faded screams of my son's voice yeesh yeah (laughs) that's a good one i'd be out there with a chainsaw too i was thinking about it i'm like do you become like a logger at that point or something like that? Yeah, <laughs> like, but it seems like it has defenses. I know, but still, if your yeah. kid's out there, I don't know. I think I, so then it understands why his dad was an insight, a bookworm. Because his dad, didn't, his let dad him out. didn't let him out. He didn't want him. Yeah, um, messing around in the woods. Yeah. And I grew up playing in the woods, man. I think I, I, no, I don't think I did too, because when I was growing up, it was just all land behind my parents' house. We yeah. were the first of the neighborhoods built in there and it ended right behind our house. So we just we did, had we free will, you know, time, running around yeah. crazy. Um, That's creepy. It's kind of funny too, that he lost his arm and his friend or his hand and his friend lost his life, but he, he didn't, had him in his neck. he didn't warn his children about it. Maybe just what if he lived in the city or something? I don't know, maybe. And this was the camping trip right? was the first like, time yeah, they've been we're out. We're moving to the burbs. Yeah, right. We're not going to be living in the woods anymore. So great um, story. Thanks. It's fun. I thought that it was, was a cool. Fun one. Yeah, yeah. So good. awesome. All right, everybody. Happy, happy New Year's. Happy New Year. By the time when this gets released, it will be New Year's. It'll be day, day one. January 1st. We release really at 8 p.m. on Sundays. Oh. So thank you very much. I hope you had a happy and safe New Year. Be safe the rest of the year, of course. I love you. This has Absolutely. been awesome. I love you, too. We'll catch you guys next, next time. Year. Next year and next what? time. Cheers. Bye. See y'all.